Hey guys, welcome to Salt City. My name's Drew, one of the pastors here. It's great to have you guys here this morning, and uh, I'm excited to open God's Word with you. You might notice that I have a blue Bible again this morning, and that's to remind myself and to remind you that if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one that looks exactly like this. And so I'm just giving it a little incentive because then you can have a Bible that's like the pastor's and that's like kind of cool, right? So get a Bible in the lobby if you don't have one. The reason that we give out Bibles is because we love God's word and God's word tells us what true Christianity is all about. And I think that's especially important in our society today because Christianity has become such a diluted thing out there, if you read the news or go on social media or whatever, that it's essentially meaningless. And maybe even more meaningless than the term Christianity is the term evangelical because it's got all these political connotations and all these types of things. And when we open God's word, what we get is a true picture of what Christianity is. And I think that when we open God's word and we look at it, it's sort of self-authenticatingly true It's like tasting a delicious cup of hot chocolate. You know that it's hot chocolate. You don't need an argument. You just taste it and you're like, this is hot chocolate. The reason I bring up hot chocolate is because uh, this time of the year, I always think about when I was uh, working concessions in Iowa City. So before I was here, I was in Iowa City and we would work concessions at all of the home football games. And about this time of the year, as it started to get cold, we would serve lots and lots and lots of hot chocolate. And as you can imagine, serving hot chocolate to like 50,000 people has its challenges. And the two essential ingredients in hot chocolate are hot water and hot chocolate mix. It's really not that complicated, right? But what would happen is over the course of the game, our hot chocolate would become incredibly diluted. And the reason is because we would run out of hot water. So the way that we made the hot chocolate is you just simply turned on boiling hot water straight out of the spigot and put it in these giant containers and mixed it up. And what would happen is the water would get warm. And then what would also happen is we were making the hot chocolate so fast because we had to, to, you know, give it to all these thirsty people and cold people in line that we wouldn't get enough mix in there. And so people would come up and they would order hot chocolate. And I was usually a cashier And I would sheepishly give them, essentially, a cup of warm water. And they would say to me, this is not hot chocolate. And I would say to them, I know. It's not hot chocolate. It's disgusting. I don't know why you just ordered it. And here's the thing. I think that we we can have a similar experience, or maybe some of us have had a similar experience with Christianity, where we're like, I don't think that I'm experiencing the real thing. And so we sort of receive this self-help teaching or what our society says Christianity is, and we're like, I don't think this is Christianity. And one specific area that I think that's true in is the area of our own experience of the Christian life. And I think one thing that's sort of out there in our society that people say about Christianity is essentially because Jesus has saved us, it doesn't really matter how we live. And I think all of us sort of receive that and we're like, 
I don't really think that that's real Christianity. And what we're going to see in and through God's word this morning is that our intuition is correct. That actually following Jesus requires radical obedience. True Christianity consists of radical obedience to the word of God and to the person of Jesus Christ. So we're in Mark chapter 3. And let me sort of set the scene for you before we dive into the lion's share of the text. So here's what sort of happens in the middle of the text that we're looking at. We're looking first at verses 13 through 15. It says, and he, that's Jesus, went on the mountain and called to, the, to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now the passage goes on a little bit and we see that Jesus in this passage has called the disciples to them himself and it lists all of their names. I just want you to notice one simple thing about this text. These disciples are obedient to Jesus. It says that he called them and they came to him. And then it says that he sent them out to preach and gave them authority to cast out demons. And what we see throughout the rest of this gospel and what we also see in these disciples' lives is that they lived lives of obedience to Jesus. They radically left their families, security, money, everything that was precious to them in their life before. They sold it all, they gave it all away to follow after Jesus in a super countercultural and radical way. You have that passage sitting in the middle of three other stories that we're going to look at. And this sermon is going to be mainly negative. And what I mean by that is it's going to be three examples of essentially what not to do. So we're going to look at three ways to avoid radical obedience to Jesus. And those three ways are lip service, insane blasphemy, and family values. So let's just take those one at a time. First one is lip service. We're looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Okay, so Jesus has become incredibly famous. There's this region, and people from all over that region are coming out to be with Jesus. He's just withdrawn from sort of the religious hub, the synagogue, and he's out in the countryside, and all these people are there. And the reason that the text gives that they went to see him is they had heard about all the things that he was doing. And you can essentially put those things into a few different categories. Jesus was casting demons out of people, which 
has to be pretty cool, right? And he was uh, teaching the gospel of the kingdom. So this new teaching was sort of coming in. He was healing people. And I think maybe one of the main reasons that these people came out to see Jesus was because he was picking fights with the Pharisees. Who doesn't like to see somebody get in a fight with a religious person, right? And so Jesus is doing all these crazy new cool things and people are sort of his fans and they're following him around and Jesus sort of has like his entourage and the disciples. The other reason that people came out and were following Jesus is because they desperately needed his healing touch. It says people with diseases were sort of crowding, crowding around Jesus because he was such a powerful person that simply to touch him was to be healed of your disease. And so you sort of see this crazy scene, right? There's some crippled people there. There's people with all sorts of different diseases like leprosy. There's social outcasts. There's this massive crowd of people and they're all around Jesus. And what happens is some people who are filled with unclean spirits are coming up to Jesus and sort of using this as an opportunity to say, you are the son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but these passages can be kind of confusing. Why would Jesus care if someone who is demon-possessed would identify him correctly? But, but if you look deeply into the text, it's kind of a weird scene, right? These people are throwing themselves in front of Jesus. They're bowing down before him. And they're yelling, you are the son of God. And Jesus, it says, rebukes them and tells them, don't say that anymore. And here's what I think is going on in the text. I think what Jesus is saying is, stop giving lip service to me. You are diluting the message that I'm trying to give. You see, when people, demon-possessed or not, fall down before Jesus and they make a show in front of everybody else, everyone else looking on thinks that they are the true followers of Christ. So this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, see guys, Jesus is just a healer. Jesus is just this public figure you guys should stay his fan, and they're identifying with him so that everyone looks on and says, that's what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. And Jesus says, no. It is not consistent with my teaching to simply make a show and for that to be what it means to be my follower. What Jesus is trying to get at and what we're going to see, the direction that he's steering us is away from lip service and to radical obedience. Jesus sets the primary example for us in what radical obedience is by hanging on a cross in obedience to God's will for his life and dying in the place of sinners. And he tells us consistently throughout the Gospel of Mark that if we want to be his followers, we have to follow in his footsteps by also taking up our cross and following him. 
So I want you to know that if you're here this morning in all love and you think that simply by coming here and maybe even raising your hands and saying that you are a follower of Jesus, that that means that you're in, you are sorely mistaken. That is not what the Bible teaches. Let me give you an example of this that I saw. I've been in college ministry for like 15 years now, including my time in college. And so I've seen a lot of students come and go in terms of people who said, yep, I'm a follower of Jesus, and then see them walk away from the faith. There was one especially tragic example for me when I was in Iowa City. There was one student who was tremendously influential. In fact, he had invited lots of people who are now part of that church in Iowa City and part of the college ministry to the church. Lots of people would say that he was the one who primarily influenced them to come. And it looked like from all outward appearances, like he was not only following Jesus, but maybe one of the most passionate people who was following Jesus, not just in the college ministry, but in the entire church. And then it was, I think his sophomore, junior year, he decided to live with some other guys in our ministry. And they started to see some real inconsistencies in his life. And they started to call him out on that. And what they noticed was, as they started to call him out on the inconsistencies in his life, he got more and more and more defensive and more and more and more distant to the point where he started blaming them for the inconsistencies in his life and actually telling them that it was sort of their fault. There was sort of a slow progression where he began to take steps away from the college ministry and has now completely left the church and doesn't even claim, as far as I know, to be a Christian. That's an example of somebody who was giving lip service to the things of God, but was not a true follower of Jesus. You see, what's scary in this passage is that demons are actually capable of having good theology and outward signs of worship. Isn't that terrifying? Demons have perfect theology, better theology than any of us could ever have in this room. And it's possible for a demon to actually inspire a person to prostrate themselves in front of Jesus. And so... Walking with Jesus does not consist in just giving lip service to the things of God. He calls us to radical obedience. That's sort of a subtle one. This one is going to be a whole lot more in your face and obvious. The second way to avoid radical obedience to Jesus is insane blasphemy. You don't accidentally walk into this one. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, Jesus' conflict with these religious leaders has been increasing throughout the gospel of Mark. And the religious leaders don't try to pull any punches here. They just throw the gauntlet down. They come out with exactly what they think about what Jesus is doing. And their general argument is that Jesus has been doing all of these miraculous things, including casting out demons and doing healings, by the power of Satan. Pretty startling. And some of you have been troubled by Jesus' response, and so I really want to take our time just to walk slowly through this argument. The first thing we see is that Jesus doesn't have just this knee-jerk reaction. He doesn't yell in their face. Jesus is incredibly rational in his response to them. And he essentially says, okay, guys, let's think this through for a little bit. There's these people. They're coming to me. They're possessed by demons. And what I've been doing is I have been casting out those demons. Do you guys think that Satan is having a fight with himself? Because if Satan was having a fight with himself, what's the problem? Wouldn't that be a great thing? If Satan got in a fight with himself, then Satan's going to win that fight and he's going to beat Satan up. And if Satan beats Satan up, then Satan's going to be destroyed and then Satan's gone. So why would you be calling me out if Satan's in a fight with Satan, we should all just have a party. That would be a great thing. But he's saying, it's not likely that Satan has risen up against himself and is having a fight with Satan. What's actually clear is that only God would be rising up against Satan, picking a fight with him, and winning. So what's actually happening is not that I'm possessed by Satan, Jesus is saying. He's saying what's actually happening is I am tying Satan up and I am robbing his house. Drop the mic. Here's the thing. It's completely rational argument that Jesus makes with the Pharisees. It's absolutely airtight. And at this point, these leaders don't say, yeah, we have just been trying to protect our turf. We were wrong. We're making up these accusations about 
you because we're convicted by you. And we haven't known how to deal with our own sin. That's what they should have done, just fallen on their faces before Jesus and said, we're so sorry. But that's not what they do. They continue to harden their hearts and put themselves in this position where they would rather accuse the Son of God with being filled with Satan than simply admit that they have been wrong. Which is when Jesus comes in with this passage that I think has been widely misunderstood and that all of us who have been Christians for some time have likely been at some point really bothered by. Because Jesus then says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And so all of us are like, have I committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I really hope that I haven't, because it sounds like if I have, then I can never be forgiven. So we need to understand what Jesus is talking about when he is talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I think that a commentator named Donald English is very helpful on this point. So I want to be very clear about what this is and what this is not. So would you read along with me with this quote from Donald English? He describes blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in this way. He says, their sin, that's the Pharisees, is that in the presence of God's grace in action, they have not only rejected it, but ascribed it to the devil. This is their fixed position. They are set on calling the Spirit's work the activity of Satan. Okay, the first words that I want you to notice from this passage, because I think it's very important that we understand this to understand what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is the words fixed and set. Okay, so the Pharisees have gotten themselves in a position, says Donald English, which I agree with, that they always and only ascribe the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Now, here's what the Bible says the work of the Holy Spirit is. The work of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus. It's to make Jesus famous. It's to make him look great, and specifically to make Jesus look great as the Savior. So what the Pharisees are doing is they're saying that Jesus' work of saving the whole world is not the work of God. It is the work of Satan. Now here's the scary thing I think about this passage is that it actually is possible to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I think if we're going to be true to what Jesus is saying here, we must say that it's possible. Here's the danger for all of us. 
And by the way, I don't think I've ever met somebody who has called the activity of the Holy Spirit the activity of Satan. To my knowledge, I don't think I've ever met somebody who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit before. But here's the danger. If you attribute the work of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, amongst a group of people to the activity of Satan, you run the risk of becoming unsavable. You run the risk of hardening your heart to such a degree that it is actually not possible for you to ever believe in Jesus. I think that's what he's saying here. So I think our reaction should be to leave completely sobered by this text and thankful if we have a soft heart, a heart that has either trusted in Jesus or is beginning to investigate his claims. Let me illustrate this for you just to further emphasize, I think, what he's saying here. Imagine that you are out in the middle of the ocean and you're starting to drown. And a helicopter flies up over the top of you and throws down one of those rings that you can grab onto, and somebody yells from the helicopter, we're the Coast Guard, we're here to save you. And let's say that for some reason in that moment, you get convinced that that is not the Coast Guard that is there to save you, but that is a group of terrorists that is trying to kill you. And so you start yelling from the water, get away from me. You're a bunch of terrorists. I don't want you to kill me. Get away from me. And again, the Coast Guard yells down to you and they say, no, we're the Coast Guard. We are trying to save you. And you just keep getting more and more heated, more and more scared, more and more defensive. You yell and yell and yell and yell and you refuse to grab onto the life raft. Let me ask you, was the Coast Guard willing to save you? Yes, absolutely. Is it, is it their fault that you didn't get saved? Absolutely not. But you, in accusing them of being terrorists, have made yourself unsavable. I think that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. If you harden your heart to such a degree that you not only say he's not capable of saving you, but you essentially call him a terrorist, you become unsavable because you refuse to trust in the finished work of Christ. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It still stands that the only way that you can possibly be saved is by trusting in what Jesus has done and looking away from yourself and looking to him and he will forgive you of whatever sin you have committed. Okay, so we've looked at two ways so far, two radically different ways, lip service and insane blasphemy 
that could be ways that we avoid radical obedience to Jesus. And the third one might hit a little bit close to home for all of us, and that's family values. Family values could be a way to avoid radical obedience to Jesus. We're looking at Mark 3, verses 20 through 21, and verses 31 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay, so here's the scene. Jesus is in this house. He's preaching. He's healing. He's doing the things that he does. And his family is saying he's out of his mind. And they're saying to Jesus, please come outside Stop doing what you're doing. Go back to your normal life. Now, at first blush, we might think, who does his family think they are to tell Jesus what to do? But let's think this through a little bit, okay? Jesus, prior to his life in ministry, had been a well-respected citizen of his small town. He had been sort of an ordinary guy, He didn't make too many waves, as far as we know. He was a carpenter. He helped to take care of his family. What's likely happened in his family relatively recently is that his earthly adoptive father, Joseph, has died. And so now Jesus has gone public with his ministry. Jesus is homeless. Jesus is a 30-year-old single man in a society where it was very unpopular to be single, and Jesus does not have a job. Okay, let's just think this through for a little bit. Is that anyone's vision for their children or future children's life? I was on a walk with my son Gabe last night, and I was thinking through this. We had a really fun walk. It was uh, after dark, and I was pushing him around in the stroller. And uh, there's this hill by our house, and it was super, super fun because I took him to the top of the hill. And this is something only dads do, right? I don't know if any of you dads have ever done this. I don't think a mom has ever done this. this is just, it, was, it was hilarious, though. What I did is I took him to the top of this hill, and, and what I would do is I would drop the stroller and let the stroller go fast and then run in front of the stroller and catch the stroller. And my son Gabe was saying, it's scary, Dad, but it's fun. You know? And I just kept doing it over and over and over again. And I was having so much fun with my son Gabe. And this text was sort of rattling around in the back of my mind. And I began to imagine the similar moments that Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters had with him growing up. And what you naturally do in those moments with your kids is you start to have dreams for them for their life. 
And you begin to think, man, I, I just look forward to when Gabe gets married and when he gets his first job and when he graduates from school or whatever it is. And we have this vision for our kids' lives that is more shaped by our American culture than it is shaped by the word of God. And in similar fashion, Jesus' very godly mother, Mary, had an idea, a vision for his life and the life that he was leading as a homeless, jobless, single, itinerant preacher was not lining up with that vision that she had. And she actually got to a point where she was saying with the crowds, my son is insane. (laughs) And so Jesus is on the pathway of obedience to God the Father, radical obedience. And his family is saying, do you know what's more important than radical obedience to God? It's our family. And Jesus makes this absolutely radical, crazy claim in a traditional, even patriarchal society. He says, you hear those people that are yelling for me, who are telling me that I should stop doing what I'm doing? That's not even my family. Do you know who my family is? It's people who put aside family traditions and tightly held values, and they value something far more than doing what is expected of them by their culture. They obey the word of God. You want to be in the same family with Jesus, you put aside parental expectations, you put aside cultural norms, you look into the word of God, and you do what it says. It's as radical today as it was then. Here's my question. What on earth would possess you to do something like that? What would make you do something so crazy? The Pharisees say it's Satan. Jesus says it's the Spirit of God. It's God waking you up from sleep and giving you new life. And it's people who are so looking away from the world and looking into the word of God that they actually believe promises like this one in Mark 10, 29 through 30. Okay, let me give you a little bit of backdrop for this. The disciples have been following Jesus. They have been obeying him. They haven't just been giving him lip service. They haven't been blaspheming his name. They haven't been holding on to their cultural values. They have been living in obedience to him and according to his word. And they're essentially saying to Jesus, this is getting really, really hard. And this is Jesus' response to them. Jesus said, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Here's what Jesus is saying. The reason that you would live this radical life 
of obedience. The reason that you would look at God's word and that you would actually seek to do what it says, that you would align yourself with him rather than cultural norms, expectations, family values, giving him lip service, whatever it is, is because you will live on this earth for 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years. And then after that, you will face God and you will continue to live for eternity. He's saying, here's the insane thing. To live for such a short period of time on this earth doing what you want to do, you should not be asking the question, what's my plan for five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now? You should be saying, how would I be living if I were living in light of 100 million years from now? You see, what's actually insane is to not be radically obedient to Jesus. And what we need to do in order to actually live this way is first and foremost, we have to understand what Jesus has done for us. You see, Jesus is not just giving lip service to what he's calling us to do. He actually sets us the example. See, Jesus left his true family, his father in heaven, and he came to the earth. He radically obeyed God by becoming a baby. And then whatever God told him to do, he obeyed with the full strength of his heart. And all of this, the entire Gospel of Mark, is leading us to the place where Jesus will be hanging on the cross. The ultimate act of the obedience of Jesus was to die on the cross for disobedient people. Jesus took your place. And the reason that he did that, Hebrews 12 says, is it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. It was because his eyes and his heart were set on the eternal reality of being with you and I forever. So here's the good news. You don't have to obey Jesus to get his approval. You are freed up to obey Jesus because you already have his approval even though you have lived a disobedient life. You see, the fuel for this radical living is not performance. The fuel for this radical living is to understand that even though you are not a radically obedient person, you are loved by a radical, radically obedient person. Let's pray. Jesus, it is amazing um, looking into your word. It really is like a breath of fresh air. So we look out at our culture and we can't get straight answers on what it means to be followers of you. But we look into your word and you give us this super clear picture that what we need to do is to fix our eyes on you, to obey you, to follow after you, to do it with all of our strength. And so Jesus, we're asking that you would help us because I think all of us are, are convicted. We look and we're like, man, I don't know that I can 
measure up. I don't know that I can live this radically obedient life. So I thank you that you took our place on the cross, that you empower us to do it. And we ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name.